It's your time to Ed Up with America's leading higher education podcast network, the Ed Up Experience, where we make education your business. This is Ed Up Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. She's Dean at St. Mary's School of Law, and she's going to be leading conversations about legal education in today's world. Now let's hear from your host, Patty Roberts. Hi, I'm Patty Roberts, host of Ed Up Legal, and I'm here with Neil Hamilton, who's the Holleran Professor of Law and co-director of the Holleran Center for Ethical Leadership in the Professions at St. Thomas School of Law. Good morning, Professor Hamilton. Good morning. I'd love to hear more about your journey to co-directing the Holleran Center and your time at St. Thomas and, and your entire legal education career. Can you tell us about your journey to your current position? Well, I always, I grew up, I always wanted to be a teacher, but uh, my father self-made entrepreneur. And uh, he said, well, you'll never make enough money as a high school teacher to support a family. And so he said, you, you need to be a lawyer. And so <laughs> I, I became a lawyer and I practiced, but I always wanted to be a teacher. And then about age 31, I made the transition to teaching law, which turned out to be a wonderful, wonderful way for me to be a teacher. And uh, in the early days, I think I, my, I was acculturated to be a craftsperson of the law and, you know, both the law school experience and the big firm experience. And, uh, I thought my mission as a teacher was to hold up the highest standards of excellence in terms of the doctrinal knowledge, applying the legal analysis, legal writing, advocacy. And uh, I had the economics, I had a strong economics background, taught a lot of law and economics, antitrust, business associations. And around age 40, I had a sabbatical and I ran into a, a person, a doctor who, he was much older, but he, he had shifted in his forties to focus on the moral core. He was a, he was a um, medical professor, but, mm-hmm. and so he said, you know, I, well, our conversations were about meaning and purpose in professional life. And I, I was chairing appointments at William Mitchell at the time. And then I kept getting all these phone calls because people were graduated with me or in my vintage at that time, I would have been, say, seven, 16, 17 years out. So we achieved everything we hoped in terms of partnerships, even judgeships, et cetera. But especially the litigators were saying, I, I need to get into teaching. And basically because they, they didn't feel they had any purpose. Their, 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 their professional life had no purpose. So that's when I just started thinking, I, and this a doctor friend helped influence me that, well, I'd like to spend the rest of my career about meaning and purpose and professional life and help our profession move that, move that direction. That's a great story. Um, do you find even in your work today that it's about at 16 or 17 years that people start to look at the profession and say, is this what my purpose is in life? Or do you think that over time 
those inquiries have come earlier among law students and lawyers. Well, so I can, I'll give you my intuitive thoughts. I mean, I don't have a data set on this, but my observation is that a great deal of one's growth towards responsibility to self and others depends on what I would call difficult or crucible experiences in life where you, your current understanding of life is questioned. And uh, so, to, so that can happen early. You know, indeed, I think our students, my students, are coming through a crucible time now. And so they're open to larger purposes and larger frameworks. I hope that makes sense. I mean, that can happen. I think by 42, most people have been through one or more uh, getting hit over the head by life, so to speak. Yes. <laughs> and then you, get, you have to deal with it. Those are, I call those key transition points in life. So was it this um, inquiry into kind of moral responsibility and purpose as part of the profession that prompted the creation of the Holleran Center? Ultimately, um, I mean, I was experimenting. I don't know if you ever ran into Eric Janis when he was dealing with uh, Mitchell, but Eric and I started, the, I think it was the first outplacement. It was, a, it was an externship where we were placing students with what we consider gold standard lawyers in the Twin Cities. And then we had a seminar component to ask the big questions. And uh, that was so life-giving, an elective, of course. And so that was 87. We started teaching professional responsibility. See, I shifted that this period. I shifted professional responsibility. Well, 89, it wasn't. So, so there was a group at Mitchell that was interested, but then in 01, when St. Thomas uh, formed a law school around a mission of integration of faith and reason, which we've been trying to figure out since 01, um, that then led to a much bigger uh, cultural um, community around this. And then by 06, and in that period, from 95 through, through uh, Tom Holleran, we can talk about Tom, but he, he would be the, what we hope our students become as one of the people who built Medtronic, one of the great medical techs of the world. Tom was their lawyer, and he was the third guy building Medtronic to what's now 90,000 employees. So Tom... And by 2006, Tom's friends were uh, wanting to fund something for Tom. And that's where we had the idea that, okay, well, let's fund something around Tom that uh, is about servant leaders or about the moral poor. So what are some of the characteristics that you and Mr. Holleran's friends saw in him um, that made him sort of the, the role model for what you were creating with the Holleran Center? Well, Tom is the truest servant leader I've, I've ever met in my life. And so 
he is, well, I'm going to use some faith language here, but you can use secular. He is a, an extremely wonderful, capable person whose heart is full of love, basically. And so <laughs> the way that plays out in life, in building an enterprise like Medtronic, it, that he is always trying to help other people achieve their potential. So Tom is always asking, how can I help you? <laughs> and uh, this built a community of very, you know, very bright, wonderful people around the idea. That's wonderful. Um, so the Holleran Center was created to honor Tom Holleran. And um, can you tell me a little bit about what it did then and its progression over time? Well, I mean, we, we, the funding base, uh, I think we're at about 5 million endowment. With, there's some entries yet. I mean, actually, we've got two professorships in there. Anyway, the, the donor base there was attracted to the idea of ethical leadership, servant leadership. But in the, in the original years, uh, my scholarship, I decided to use, to use my scholarship to come through the door in our profession of professionalism, because that's, that's where the bar was, and that was a vocabulary that existed. Uh, as we progressed to 06 into, towards, then Jerry Oregon joined me in 11, as a, and ultimately on 16, Jerry becomes a co-director. Um, and so we were experimenting in the classroom as to what strategies would go where they are, where the students are. What then we were trying at St. Thomas in the required curriculum. So that was huge, huge challenge. Because in the elective curriculum, you draw what we call the choir of students who are interested in these questions and want to join out a reflective journey. But it required you got a quite a subset in there that this isn't the time of life when they want to do that. And so uh, we, I mean, so that as the center was growing 06, 07 onward, we kept experimenting to go where they are. And then I kept running into the medical education literature. And they were there ahead of us by, I would say, 15 years at least on formation of the new entrant towards deep care for the patient in teams. And so that, I'm always can learn to spend now, right now I'm exploring nursing, holy smokes. I mean, nursing is much, much further along than we are how to do this. So um, recently, as you know, the ABA Council for the Section on Legal Education unanimously recommended a change to Standard 303. And they, uh, the change is requiring all law schools to provide substantial opportunities to students for the development of a professional identity. And that should be voted on in uh, early 2022. So uh, I understand that the Holleran Center was very involved in defining professional identity. Can you share with us um, a little bit about 
how the Holleran Center presented that and 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 what the ABA is is looking to consider as professional identity uh, when it potentially adopts this change to the standard. Well, we, Jerry and I, Jerry Organ and I have been doing workshops ever since where we bring in um, teams. We always talk about the important thing is that a school would have a, a core group to support each other, faculty and staff. So we were bringing teams of four to five for summer workshops, we did 13 workshops, I think we had 280 faculty staff from around the country. So, and then we were speaking and others started writing and speaking because we're really building off a vocabulary that from from the 07 uh, Educating Lawyers book, because that, 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 that book introduced this language of formation of professional identity. It was much more developed in the 2010 book, Educating Physicians. Um, so we were, we were building off, off of that. The actual accreditation change coming through the, the uh, section council, we, we didn't, have any strategic plan. It just happened because some of the people who've been with us at our workshops were active there. And they proposed that once once they proposed it, then we rallied a lot of people nationally to submit comments about professional identity in support. And we tried to help with the definition to talk about you know internalization of the the core values and guiding principles of the profession and that repeated opportunity for reflection throughout the curriculum. Reflection is actually how adults, as far as I can tell, moral growth in adults happens out of a a kind of a, an iterative loop of action, feedback, dialogue, reflection, action, feedback, dialogue, reflection. And we just trying to get better. So uh, we, they, they, we think they're, they're on board, they being the council is on board with our understanding of, of professional identity formation. Uh, so we think it's an inflection point in terms of more attention and energy around this uh, goal for our students. So the loop that you mentioned um, is consistent with uh, what I encountered when learning how to be a clinical teacher and doing experiential education. Uh, would you say that um, clinical education, experiential education already includes that kind of reflection loop? Absolutely. Indeed, I, well, I think professions have been doing this whole way. I think the, the medical education scholarship helps us with vocabularies and kind of frameworks there. They call it authentic professional experiences. And uh, that there, I wrote a paper on transitions, the key transitions of moving from being a student to being or a new entrant to being a lawyer. And they their literature is very clear that the major transitions are all when the students interface with the patient, 
or when the students feel they are doing the work of the profession. It can be simulated. I mean, this all you include all the simulation courses and your externships. The key would be that though there is a consistent support for the habit of reflection. And I just finished a paper on what do we know about reflection. And that would include uh, some sort of an action plan. Right? We don't just noodle it. We, we come up with a step or two that we're going to do. So it, where the perhaps the reflection is guided by the professor and then um, a, an action plan for incorporation of of anything to improve is uh, decided in partnership with the student and the professor. Absolutely. I think over time here, I now conclude in recent years that a guided reflection coaching model is by far the most powerful. And I think would if we could figure out a way to have a uh, trained, I'm not talking about a certified coach where you get into, you know, fairly substantial investments on the coach part into some sort of a certification. No, just modestly trained alums, I think, five to 10 years out would be my, I think we could afford this because I think they might do it, at least for us, they're doing it pro bono, but they would coach some small group of students all the way through. So you have a, you know, the students working with a guided coaching, guided reflection all three years. So I, I understand St. Thomas has a, a very robust mentorship program. Is that what you're talking about with the coaching for all three years? That's part of it. Uh, very big part, yes. Uh, but I, you know, that is, that's an expensive option. Um, so I'm not sure how many can replicate that, but I think you, because you over here, some schools have required clinic, but we don't yet. I think we're sitting at 85% of that clinic by graduation, but some schools do. So here's a, so you have, I just, I'm envisioning it's a whole building idea. And so you have, we have mentor externship, we have clinics, we have full number, but we also have other externships, we have all the simulations, we have moot court, etc. But what we are just starting to be one step at a time toward how do we coordinate all this so that from a student's perspective, there's some sort of a, what do you say, a cumulative and coordinated guided reflection. Is that Makes sense because you have all these pieces in the building that are doing it, but they don't coordinate. Right. It's kind of ad hoc or siloed, I think, at many law yeah. schools. But you're talking about maybe putting it in under one umbrella where it's explored. The professional identity formation is explored for each student across all of those different components of their legal education. Exactly. Because they're, and the reason that needs to be individualized is that. Each of them is at a different life stage of development on many of these key competencies. We hope we talk about how the, the competencies we're really talking about here fit with what the employers are saying they want. 
Yes, this is a great transition point, I think, to talk about your new open access book, Law Student Professional Development and Formation, Bridging Law School Student and Employer Goals, that you've written with um, the former dean at Cincinnati, Lou Billionis? Is that Billionis, yes. Billionis, okay. Um, so this is going to come out in October, and maybe you can tell us uh, a little bit about how you've connected or proposed connecting the law student experience and curriculum with what the employers ultimately are looking for. Well, I mean, here's where competency-based education, which is where we are headed, although we are we mean legal education, it, because with the accreditation changes in 14, it's asking us to do learning outcomes and, and ultimately uh, program assessment and, and standard 315 now. We're taking baby steps, baby steps, baby steps. You know, medical education and health education far ahead of us on this. So, I mean, the first question is to ask with an open mind, what empirically do we know about what the people served, in our case, clients need? And in our case, since it's an enlightened self-interest door here, but you'd ask also what do the legal employers need? Although I think the legal employers, to some significant degree, are reflecting what clients need. They're, they're in service there. Um, so that's the start of this on it's also called this ongoing uh, process of discerning or understanding and then discerning well what's needed all right so we're seeing a developing literature here of what do we know about we, we and i think what our database is weakest on what do the individual clients need i mean the larger organizational clients on the for-profit side uh they're organized you know, the various location of corporate counsel, et cetera. They, you, you can have data sets there, but like for St. Thomas, we place a lot in government, about 10% social justice. We don't, what do they need? Right. And so then you start moving backwards. Well, that that's your goal then. And then you do backward planning into the curriculum and then, you try to connect all this with, well, where is the student? And the students are at different stages. Some schools, like when I taught at Mitchell, I loved the night section. I, you know, it hit a cost on me, but I love teaching older students. Because especially in formation, they have had experience. So then you're trying to build this bridge from where the students are. And some of them have quite later stage, quite a bit of experience. Some, almost none, you know, and then except academic. And connect through the law school experience over to these competencies that the employers and clients want and help the student have experiences to develop these competencies with evidence that the employers will value and help the student to have vocabularies that the employers understand. So, 
So I, um, I understand certainly what you're saying makes tremendous sense. You look at what the clients need, the employer, employers need from our future lawyers. Um, and maybe then you're looking at a kind of a backward design for the competencies that you want them to acquire by the time they graduate. But you're also saying you have to take the students where you find them individually. How can we as law schools do that? Um, it, are you suggesting, is there some sort of assessment where we can see where each student is? Because of course, at least in our first year curriculum, we're just doing the same for everyone. Um, so what options do we have there as law schools? What would you like to see as the future of legal education so that we can do that more effectively? Well, this is a learn by doing. I mean, the answers are tentative in the sense that Jerry, Jerry and I, Gary Organ and I are constantly experimenting. So at least at St. Thomas, we do roadmap. We call it the roadmap. It's a book I wrote to try to help students on move from being a student to meaningful postgraduate employment. And we do a coaching intervention in uh, late January and February of the first year. Our mentor externship does not have a classroom component in the first year. It, uh, it has a required experience out with the mentor to see some things, but does not have a classroom component. That is a technical year in the 3 So I coach Jerry between Jerry and me where we just do this as a you know an extra load because I love the coaching. I've, I've found that coaching is the most rewarding, life-giving thing that I do as a teacher. So we, this is a one-on-one -on -one for about an hour where student is given all these data sets about what do the employers want, try to discern as best they can at this time, what are their top options for post-graduation employment, and then uh, a development plan, a written development plan, you know, two pages. And then we do an hour's conversation. Also, this gives us a chance right there. We have the first semester grade, so we know in our in our school that if you are in the bottom part of the class coming off the first semester is a high correlation of our past. So uh, we for that group we have a continue what I we've now moving to what I call a continuous coaching model. I stay with those students the whole three years in a uh, try to see them once or twice a semester. So anyway that gets I hope that gives you a sense of what I if we could just do these one-on-one -on -one sort of interventions um, get key transition points. That is a key transition point for many students. That'll be the first time academically that they are um, very disappointed and, and seriously wondering about the future. So, and then we try to set them up so that you have a plan going forward, especially moving towards experiential and they move forward. One last key piece is, I think a key opportunity we're all missing is that coming off the two summers, for most, actually nearly all the students, if they have any sort of legal experience, even pro bono volunteer, then 
this is a very formative experience that benefit from reflection right now in the 2L class and 3L class to have some guided reflection. So reflection points after both employment summers. Yes. Come back that fall. Yes. So you have outlined um, what I would say is a a gold standard um, approach to legal education with the coaching for every student in the first year. Um, and then after the first, second summer, or the first summer and the second summer, some guided reflection to continue um, refining their plan. I think we're a ways uh, away from that gold standard. So what do you see in the coming five years as the future of legal education? Well, that's where the book comes in. We, we, in Lou, especially as a former dean, you know, and your dean, my co-author, very much focused on this question you just raised, what's practicable uh, from a dean's and resources standpoint. So I'm, I mean, my hope is that we, we, we see substantial experimentation, which we are seeing. So like the 303 change, we would hope would be a catalyst for even more experimentation as to what can we afford, what can we do. Um, so it's going to be step by step. I think beyond my experiences, each of us starts with some sort of a strategic analysis of your own building and see who do you have within the building, faculty or staff. Staff has a huge role. Staff, in many cases, knows students far more than especially your uh, academic support people and your career services. Uh, they know the students much better than many faculty. Uh, I just hope we don't get hung up on all the challenges. There are so many, but I would hope we focus on what opportunity do I have in my building to get some people together who would uh, want to spend some energy. Just to give you a, 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 just one sense, one step. Let's say we're a small law school, so it's 160, 50, 60 per class, so we have two big sections in the first year. If, if any so that's two professors, or two big sections. Well, if the two contracts professors want to do some experimentation in formation space, in teams, let's say, well, that's a big step. Your entire student body is getting that exposure. Or in our case, we require professional responsibility in the second year. So Greg Sist and I agree we're going to try something. Everybody in the second year is exposed to uh, so that's all that's you know step by step i think that makes a lot of sense um i love that you embrace experimentation and that your your law school gives you the space to do that uh, and i hope that more faculties and administrators across the country consider how to incorporate um, professional development and formation into the curriculum and co-curricular activities because uh, it can only benefit our students and ultimately the clients they will serve. I thank you for talking with us today, and I'm looking forward to 
the book and uh, to seeing how the Holleran Center continues to um, help us evolve legal education to be more competency-based nationally. Thank you, Patty. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of EdUp Legal with your host, Patty Roberts. EdUp Legal is part of the EdUp Experience podcast network, bringing you the brightest and most influential minds across higher education and beyond. Here at EdUp, we make education your business.